Father, on this first Sunday of the year, 2021, we come around your word because your word lives and abides forever. And Lord, we want to build our lives on the foundation of your word. And today, may your word make us strong. May it embolden us. May it enable us to do everything that you've called us to do. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I'm speaking on the power of open. What happens in our lives when we open, whether it be a door or a gift or an opportunity that comes, the power of open, probably the most powerful open that there is, is when we open our heart to Jesus knocking at the door and wanting to come in. Because when we open that door of our heart, eternal life becomes our possession. Think of that. Eternal life. Eternal life becomes mine by the power of open. When I open the door and invite Jesus to come in. I was just finishing up my reading through the, the New Testament this year, and I was in the book of Revelation, obviously the last three or four days, finishing those last four chapters, and talking about that glorious place of heaven where those books are opened and the book of life is open, where there are no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, where the Lamb is the light of heaven forever. And I'm thinking all of that belongs to us today because Jesus stands at the door and knocks, and if anyone opens to him, then eternal life belongs to them. But I'm also talking about not just eternal life, but how to live an overcoming life right here and right now when we're not in heaven, when there is a real enemy in the earth, when there is a real agenda, when there is a kingdom of darkness and a God of this world who, who rules and he's the father of lies and when there is sickness and when there is despair and when there is death, how do we live in this world shining the light of Christ? How do we live in this world overcoming and victorious. And so if we're going to do that, there's other things that we have to open. Not just the door to Jesus, but I've been talking about we have to open our Bible. We have to open the Bible. And we read in Colossians 3:16, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom." Dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let the word, let the word dwell in you. If the devil can't make you too lazy to read the word, he'll make you too busy to read the word. Either way, to keep you out of God's word would certainly be his agenda because here, when we dwell, when the word of Christ dwells in us, that is where we live in this richness and this fullness. And then we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true. How many would like to know what is true in a world of lies and false and fake and everything else? Well, that's what the scriptures do. They teach us what is true and they make us realize what is wrong in our lives. The, the scriptures correct us when we are wrong. Teach us to do what is right. God uses your Bible. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. That's the power of an open Bible. God uses this to equip you and to prepare you for every good work. Now, last week, I shared with you the thought on how to study your Bible, how to read your Bible once you open it. 
And we talked about that you must read your Bible regularly, just like you would feed your physical body regularly. You would do that daily. So you must feed your spirit man and your spiritual life regularly. This is to your spirit life what bread and food is to your physical life. So how do I read my Bible? Regularly. Not just once a Sunday hearing somebody speak about it. And it's my honor to speak about it. But if that's all the Bible you're getting, that's not enough. Just like if all you did was eat one meal a week on a Sunday morning, that would not be enough either. So you read your Bible regularly, and you read it reverently, reverently. The Bible is God-breathed. The Scripture is inspired by God. Paul told Timothy that he has known the Holy Scriptures since he was a child, the Holy Scriptures. So we read this reverently. This isn't, you know, John Grisham. And I like John Grisham, but this isn't John Grisham. This is the word, the will, the works of God. And thirdly, that we read our Bible receptively. Many times I have read it on my knees, seeking to receive this engrafted word of God. I'm not just, Lord, wanting knowledge, because knowledge puffs up. Lord, I want to be changed in my heart. I want to be changed in my attitude. I want to be changed in the spirit of my mind, renewed in my mind. And so I read the Bible, not just regularly, not just reverently, but receptively to become a doer of the word and not just a hearer or a knower only. And then last week I talked about that we read our Bible for readiness. Like a soldier stays in a state of readiness because a battle can come at any moment, at any time. The next thing you know, we find ourselves in a battle. Maybe it's a mental battle or an emotional battle or physical battle. And we have to be ready. Well, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And so when I was a soldier in the United States Army, we stayed in a state of readiness. Our weapons were near, our weapons were always clean, and our weapons were always zeroed in. And we could draw those weapons quickly. And we need to read our Bible for battle, to be ready for a state of readiness. And finally, last week, I said that we need to read our Bibles for retention. And this is the superpower of growing as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we read the Bible and we memorize it and meditate on it. When we memorize and meditate. Why is it that some people have been Christians for 10 or 15 years and they're still pretty you know, they're, they're, they're just kind of not dynamic. Other people have been Christians for like six months, and they're just like dynamic, growing in God. You just can't believe it. I'm telling you the difference. One may read their Bible, but the other doesn't just read the Bible, but retains and memorizes and meditates and let the Word of God change their heart and their thought and their thinking. If you want to supercharge your walk with Jesus Christ, I'm telling you right now, read your Bible for retention. Now today... I want to talk, and I want us to look at the reliability of the New Testament documents. Now, of course, if the New Testament documents are reliable, then it would just go to, it would be obvious that the Old Testament documents are reliable as well, because the New Testament is filled with the Old Testament. But I want to focus today on the reliability of the New Testament documents. In other words, can I trust my Bible? Can I trust the New Testament? Can I have confidence that what I am reading today is what was originally written 2,000 years ago? Or is this just a game of Chinese whispers where somebody told someone in one generation and somebody tells them in the next generation and the next generation and what we have today is all messed up? So trusting in the reliability of the Bible means knowing two things. 
First, it means knowing that the original authors recorded historically accurate information. They wrote what was true. Second, knowing that the Bible I hold in my hands today contains what the original authors wrote down. That I'm reading what they wrote. And so I want to share with you today why you can trust your Bible. I want to share with you today why you can trust the New Testament documents. Are you ready for this little study this morning? Are you ready to learn why we can trust the New Testament documents? Number one is that we have multiple and independent sources who have contributed to it. In other words, one person did not sit in a cave on an 80-day fast and write the Bible as he was getting revelations. No, that's not the way this happened. We tend to think of the Bible as a book. And it is today, yes, a book. But this book is a collection of letters, poems, prophecies, historical documents that span thousands of years of human history. Think of that. Think of that. There are actually 66 books in the Bible. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And they were written over centuries and centuries and centuries by about 40 different authors. And yet, what's astonishing is from the first three words in Genesis, in the beginning, to the last word in the book of Revelation, amen. These 66 books written over thousands of years by over 40 different authors offer us an astonishingly coherent story from the beginning to the end. Now we should judge the New Testament manuscripts just like we would any other historical or ancient document. Now one mark of reliable documentation is that it comes from multiple independent sources. And we have that in the New Testament documents. Secondly, we have thousands of New Testament manuscripts. Not the original, but copies. Copies, and we have thousands of them. When you have lots of copies of a document, lots of them, then it's easy to compare them and see where variations in the text may occur. And the more you have, the more accurate you can see what the intent in the original texts say. For instance, the most copies of any ancient document in history is Homer's Iliad, written about 800 B.C. And so Homer's Iliad, what we have today, we have known about 1,800 copies. Obviously, the original doesn't exist of that. But we have 1,800 copies, and this is by far the most copies of any ancient document. By comparison, there are the writings of Julius Caesar. We have about 10 copies. There are uh, the writings of the Roman historian Tacitus. We have about 20 of his copies. He wrote during the time of Christ. There's also Pliny the Younger, seven of copies of his. Now, no one disputes the authenticity of these manuscripts because they can take these copies and put together what the original said. But when it comes to the New Testament, we have 5,824 copies of the original Greek 
And then if you had the ancient copies of other languages, the ancient Latin and Syriac and Coptic and Arabic, we have more than 20,000 ancient copies of the New Testament documents. Daniel Wallace, the New Testament scholar, said this. The average classical Greek writer has less than 20 copies of his works still in existence. Stack them up and they will be about four feet high. If you stack up the copies of the New Testament manuscripts, they would be over a mile high, 1.6 kilometers high. Now, the more copies we have, the more we can be sure of the accuracy of the text. Let me give you another reason why we can trust the New Testament documents. The manuscripts were written early, very early. Some of the copies of the ancient manuscripts didn't even surface till like three or four or five hundred years, like, like w- 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 some of the names that I had mentioned earlier. But that's not true of the New Testament documents. We have good evidence to suggest that most, if not all, of the New Testament was written before 70 AD. It's reasonable to think this based on historical facts. And we know that Jesus would have crucified, was crucified and resurrected somewhere in the mid-30s, early 30s to mid-30s AD. But it's probable to think rationally that the entire New Testament could have been written by about 70 AD. And here's why. Because Titus, the Roman general, who would eventually become the Roman emperor, Titus, he in 70 AD demolished and totally destroyed the city of Jerusalem and burnt the Jewish temple to the ground. Someone said you could run a plow through what used to be the city of Jerusalem from end to end. Jesus himself said not one stone would be left upon another. The temple, the center of Jewish culture, the home of Judaism was totally burnt to the ground. And yet, none of the New Testament authors mention this catastrophic event. In fact, in John chapter 5 and verse 2, we read this following passage. Now, there is in Jerusalem the sheep gate. Now, there is in Jerusalem the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by covered colonnades. So John's description of the temple is in the present tense. This indicates that he wrote these words before the temple was destroyed. And most scholars believe that John's was the last gospel written. The other gospels and the book of Acts were penned well before the gospel of John was penned. And the gospel of John speaks of Jerusalem and the temple as he is writing as though they were standing in the present tense. And so we have early documentation. Let me give you another reason. The New Testament documents are a collection of eyewitness accounts. The New Testament reads like a collection of eyewitnesses to the life and to the teachings of Jesus. Now the key to eyewitness accounts is details. 
details. Not just facts, not just facts, not just, you know, a creed. Details, lots and lots of details. And that is exactly what the New Testament provides. In his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, by Frank Turek, Frank lists 84 specific and precise details from just the last 16 chapters of the book of Acts. 84 precise, exact details from just the last 16 chapters of the book of Acts. They include names of people, places, crossroads, weather patterns, the depth of water in certain places. They have, these are specific and exact details and all 84 of them have been confirmed by historians and archaeologists. Details. Details. The Gospel of John alone contains 59 confirmed historical and archaeological details. Confirmed. There is no other set of ancient manuscripts that contain the level of historically verifiable authenticity. Now I recommend both of Frank Turek's books. I've read both of them more than once, two or three times. His book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and his second book called Stealing from God. Highly recommend them to you. You'll read them over and over again. Let me give you another reason why we can trust the New Testament documents. Non-Christians, non-Christian sources outside the Bible confirm the most important details of Jesus' life. Not friendly sources, unfriendly sources. There are 10 non-Christian sources who mention Jesus within 150 years of his life. Tacitus, the Roman historian, is one of them. I mentioned him earlier, from 56 to 120 AD. Now, in about 64 AD, Nero burns Rome to, you know, to the ground. But he blames it on the Christians. Tacitus writes about this, and as he was talking about the Christians that Nero was blaming for the burning of Rome, he burnt it, but he was, you know, he was blaming the Christians. But Tacitus writes these words. He's talking about Christians and then their leader, Christus. He says, Christus, listen to what this historian said in that first century. Christus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. As a Roman historian, completely outside of the Bible. There are many, there are others. There's, there's, there's ten. Josephus was the Hebrew historian from 37 to 100 AD. He refers in his book Antiquities to Jesus who was called the Christ. Then there was Pliny the Younger. There was the Babylonian Talmud. There was Lucian and five more. They verified details of what the New Testament says about Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Let me give you another reason why we can trust the New Testament documents. We can reconstruct the entire New Testament using just the quotes from the early church fathers. If we had no documents at all, if we had no copies at all, the early church fathers, I'm talking about Clement, 
who learned at the feet of the Apostle Paul. I'm talking about Ignatius and Polycarp, who were disciples of John. From about 95 to about 110 AD, in those 15 years, about 25 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, these fathers, all three of these leaders, cited in their writings nearly the entire New Testament. They quoted every book in the New Testament except Jude and 2 John. That's 38 verses out of 7,957 New Testament verses. And since they were quoting the New Testament letters, those letters existed, of course, well before 100 AD. Can I give you another reason why we can trust the New Testament documents? Historical and archaeological evidence corroborate the New Testament documents. There are 30 people mentioned in the New Testament whose names and positions have been verified by history and archaeology. For instance, about 30 years ago, in 1990, the actual burial box, the ossuary, a bone box, that contains the bones of Caiaphas, the high priest, who sentenced Jesus to death, was discovered outside of Jerusalem. It can be seen today in the museum. Caiaphas, Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest. In 1961, at Caesarea Maritama, an 82 centimeter by 65 centimeter stone was discovered with the name Pontius Pilate engraved into it, dating to 36 AD. Pontius Pilate would have had his reign from there, from Caesarea Maritama, even though he was in Jerusalem to condemn Jesus for the Passover. There are plenty of other examples where archaeology has corroborated the claims of the New Testament, plenty of them, including just 16 years ago, the discovery of the pool of Siloam, where in John chapter 9, Jesus sends the blind man. This pool was uncovered. We were there a couple years ago, weren't we, Narrowly? And others that, were, that, are, that are here this morning, you stood there with me. That pool is written up in John chapter 9, verse 1 through 12. Also in 1888, the pool of Bethesda, where Jesus heals the, the, the lame man. That was excavated. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, during the time of the census, Luke gives names of leaders, world leaders. One of them was Syrian governor Quirinius, whose name was discovered on a coin, and his face as well. Also, Luke talks about in Luke 3, 1, King Lysanias, who also is listed on an inscription near Damascus. I'm talking about the reliability of the New Testament documents. Can I just give you one more? At home, are you still with me? Are you still eating wheat bix? <laughs> Let me give you this last reason. Ancient prophecies are fulfilled. Thanks, team. You can come. Ancient prophecies are fulfilled in amazing ways in the New Testament. There are specific Old Testament prophecies that foretell the origin, nature, and life of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And here's what's amazing. They were written between several hundred and a couple thousand years before his birth. And yet they predict the events of his life with amazing accuracy. Daniel chapter 7, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, all contain prophecies about his birth, death, and resurrection. They are so accurate that many scholars thought they had to be written before the fact. But that was all shot down when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. And it's, it was realized that these prophecies actually were written hundreds if not thousands of years before Christ. They are so accurate. One Bible scholar, J. Barton Payne, identified 71 Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I've read other places up to 300. I read one statistician said that if only eight that had been written hundreds if not thousands of years before, if only eight of them were true, the odds of that would be like one in one quadrillion, something like that. Number I couldn't meet. I had 17 zeros behind it. Today, I'm teaching about the power of open. You have to open your Bible. But today I'm showing you how that you can open your Bible with confidence, with assurance. I'm talking about the reliability of the New Testament documents. Multiple independent sources contributed to it. We have thousands of New Testament manuscripts. We have manuscripts that were written early, very early. The documents are a collection of eyewitness accounts that they were willing to die for. Listen, many people die for what they believe in. This is not what these people died for. They died because they would not renounce what they saw. That's different than just dying for what you believe in. Non-Christian sources outside the Bible confirm the most important details of Jesus' life. We can reconstruct the entire New Testament except for just a few verses using the quotes from the early church fathers who quoted those scriptures over and over and over again. I read somewhere that there was something like a million quotes from the early church fathers. That's how in love they were with the scriptures. Historical and archaeological evidence corroborate the New Testament documents and ancient prophecies are fulfilled in amazing ways in the New Testament. Now look, of course, there will always be doubters and deniers. Even in the very day, there were doubters and deniers. There will always be cynics and skeptics. And the Bible will always be a contradiction to those who live in opposition to it. The greatest contradiction in the Bible is that it contradicts man in his sinful lifestyle. Many will mock and malign the message. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. <sighs> One man's foolishness is another man's foundation. 
To the one who is perishing, the Bible is silly. I think that's one of Richard Dawkins' favorite words, the Oxford professor, famous atheist, silly. To the one who is perishing, the Bible is silly. It is senseless. It is stupid. But to the one being saved, it is sweet. It is sure. And it is secure. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, it says this. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. They don't smell the same thing. Listen to what the scripture says. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. My last scripture. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the apostle Paul who championed, championed, championed the gospel of Jesus Christ says this. Beaten and battered more times than we could count. Persecuted. The Apostle Paul says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. I want to stand here today and declare I also am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe the gospel. I believe the Bible. I trust the word of God. And the gospel has been the power of God that has brought salvation to me. And I wonder this morning, Carol will come in a moment and talk to us, if you would let the gospel become the power of God unto salvation to you. Amen.